Hello and welcome to Santa Fe's General Medicine's medical podcast, Keeping in Sight, Bridging the Healthcare Community. In this episode, our MSL co-hosts and clinical pharmacists have a conversation with Dr. Ann Peters on how to incorporate social determinants of health in clinical trials, as well as methods to overcome the challenges that under-resourced communities face on a daily basis. Dr. Peters identifies key barriers that physicians and other healthcare providers encounter when designing clinical trials for patients with diabetes, particularly among racial and ethnic minority populations, as well as other marginalized communities. I'm Katie Musavi. And I'm Yota Manilopoulos, and we are the Cardiometabolic Medical Science Liaisons for Sanofi. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Ann Peters. She is a professor at the Keck School of Medicine at University of Southern California in Los Angeles. She's the director of the USC Clinical Diabetes Programs and directs diabetes centers in Beverly Hills, as well as under-resourced East Los Angeles. She works with the LA County Department of Health Services on a countywide diabetes program. Dr. Peters has been a principal investigator on multiple clinical trials focusing on diabetes and diabetes prevention and has been published in over 200 peer-reviewed journals. She continues to focus on patient care every day and participates in clinical trials while passionately serving the East Los Angeles community. Welcome, Dr. Peters. Thank you for having me. We're looking forward to learning more about the impact of social disparities on diabetes care and the ability of clinical research to bridge this gap. First, I'd love for you to share what led to your passion for conducting research in healthcare disparities in diabetes. So the story of where I became interested in healthcare disparities starts when I was in first grade. And my desk mate was a Black young man, and I was tasked with teaching him how to read. And he'd had some troubles keeping up with the other kids. And I was very serious when I was in first grade, and I guess I've always been serious. And so I really wanted to help him. And I started trying, but I realized that I wasn't able to get very far. And it wasn't because he couldn't learn how to read, but it was because he was out sick so often from school. And at that point, I realized that health was really important, as was education. And by then, I'd already decided to be a doctor. It made me really see that there was this interplay between social determinants of health, because this young man came from a family where there were many challenges, as well as being healthy. And so I decided that I would work in under-resourced communities, and I'm not sure I that consciously decided this, but I knew what I was thinking. And I started volunteering really from that point onward to do mentoring and tutoring of young people. And then eventually it became my career. I think that that's really amazing that you had such insight and awareness outside of your own interests at that early on of an age. I think most children at that time are really only thinking of their own day-to-day life or their own interests. And so for me, I think it's really apparent that this is your calling and you've truly dedicated your life to caring for others, whether that be in the medical capacity or within society. So let's just quickly catch our listeners up to speed. SDOH is defined by the CDC as conditions in the places where people live, learn, work, and play that can affect their health risks and outcomes. These include access to healthcare and education, social and community constructs, economic stability, as well as neighborhood and built environment. So Dr. Peters, can you share some examples of how these SDOH parameters 
affect your patients on a daily basis? So I can't stress enough the need to understand these factors when treating patients because they're things that I'm fortunate enough to not have to deal with on a daily daily basis in my life. But that's not true for many of my patients. And one of the things that I also think is that many of my patients don't want to tell me, the doctor, all of these stressful things that are happening in their lives. So we frequently work with a social worker or even with my research team where the patients really feel more comfortable discussing all of this because they don't want me to judge them. And I'm not going to judge anybody, but people are proud and I understand that. But a very big factor that I see that involves all sorts of issues is the fear of or actually being homeless. And a lot of these patients are living in situations when there are multiple people to one small apartment. They're always feeling like they may not be able to pay their rent. They may get evicted. They become evicted. Not having a safe place to live is a very worrisome reality. And it obviously takes away from one's ability to focus on such things as blood sugar levels. There's crime. The areas in which my patients live have a much higher rate of crime than where I live. So just walking for exercise becomes an impossibility because it's too risky. Many of my patients fear deportation or deportation of family members because their immigration status may be complicated. And in my clinic, we don't care about people's immigration status. We treat everybody the same. But it's a concern my patients have, and they're concerned about it when they come to an official place, like a clinic that's run by the county, that something bad will happen to them. Food insecurity is something that is found in 30 to 50% of my patients. We determined when we first started working 20 years ago in this area where we did surveys. And if I ask about it, I see it all the time. And I see patients where they're going to the equivalent of a soup kitchen where they go get food. It's very high in carbs. You'll see their glucose levels spiking and then falling. You'll see all sorts of patterns that are different because of food insecurity and also because of the fact that they don't have healthy foods that don't cause those blood glucose spikes. So I think about food insecurity all the time when I'm treating my patients. Then there's issues with health literacy. A lot of these patients haven't reached the same educational status as other individuals. It doesn't mean they can't learn, but for many of them, they're not going to be able to read at an 11th grade level. And many of the materials that we give to patients say how to use an insulin pump are written at an 11th grade level. So it's very hard for people to understand. So we spend a lot of time working with our patients to create guides and handouts that are written at the appropriate literacy level. And they may not have the numeracy skills. Again, it's all part of what their educational background and opportunity has been. We're pretty good at teaching people, but you've got to start where they are. You can't assume that they're going to know what you know because their their life experience might have been different. When I bring patients into clinical trials, and particular clinical trials that are multi-center, I have to spend a fair amount of time just getting people educationally up to speed so that they can be on par with other individuals. I can do it, but it does often take me more time. And as a physician, I certainly can't fix a lot of these issues, but I try to individualize my care such that what I'm asking a patient to do is something that they can do in the context of their lives. 
Somebody who's working three jobs is living in a small space, may not have a smartphone, may have food insecurity, whatever's going on in their life, they're not going to be able to do things like give insulin injections five times a day. They're not going to be able to do a lot of the things that you might think they ought to do because the social determinants of health are really prominent and and figure importantly in how they deal with their day-to-day lives. Thank you for that insight. When you're really kind of on the patient side of things, you realize what priorities patients have and what worries them and stresses them out. So our goals may be A1C reduction, prevention of diabetes, complication. And of course, these are really important to us and, you know, the health of the patient, but patients have those other worries, like you mentioned, and it's not always about the guidelines or the medications, but really kind of the examples that you shared that impacts the decisions patients make about their diagnosis. In 2020, the ADA published a systematic review about social determinants of health and included recommendations to prioritize a next generation of research that targets social determinants of health as a root cause of diabetes inequities. They provide recommendations to train researchers in methods to conduct this next generation of interventional studies. As someone who has a lot of experience in this already, what do you think are the biggest barriers for patients in under-resourced communities in terms of enrolling in clinical trials, and how did you overcome them? I think there are many barriers, and they're at all levels. The barriers include that the information available to patients is often not written in a way that they can understand it. So one of the first steps is helping a patient understand what it is that we're wanting to do. Once a patient actually truly understands and is willing to work with this, I find that they're very adherent and, you know, great study participants, but I have to get them to that point. To start with, informed consent in this population is really different than in other populations where I work because you can't just give them an informed consent, have them read it, understand it, and sign it. And even an informed consent where they've tried hard to change the literacy level to something simpler still has words in it by necessity that are medical. So what my staff is trained to do and has scripts to do is to take the informed consent and review it with the patient very carefully, making sure that each part of it is understood. And so it means I can't just mail an informed consent to someone to read that I can try, but it generally doesn't help. Then usually a patient will read it with my staff and then they'll want to bring it home. And oftentimes I save a step by the patient bringing family members in with them, even for the beginning of the consent process. But you really want to be able to make sure the patient feels safe And on some level, that they're not being used, because I think people in this setting are worried that you're using them as a guinea pig. You're going to do research and not do anything for them. And I'm very mindful of the fact that I want to give something to the patient, basically to provide better care in the future, not just in the context of that study. You also need to make sure, obviously, that the informed consent is available in the language your patients speak. And for me, that's Spanish. And then As I said, my study coordinators and staff are all from the local community. They not only speak the same language, they understand the issues my patients have, where they go, how they live their lives. And it helps for my study patients to connect with my coordinators. And then my coordinators are often helping with the patient's needs that are not just related to the study. 
So if a patient is having difficulty obtaining food, we have lists of places they can go to get food. If they're having trouble finding a place to live, we have people who will help with that. So we do a lot to help patients. Again, it's not just what the study says they need, it's what the patient needs. And the sustainability beyond the trial and being available to patients and making sure that either we continue to help them or we connect them to care where they're going to get ongoing help is really important. Let's get into further detail about your first study within the social disparity space. Sure. I was already spending half my time working in an under-resourced community in East Los Angeles and half my time working in a well-sourced community in Beverly Hills. So I was working there, but not really doing research. And I obtained grant funding through the Keck Foundation to do what we call the Keck Diabetes Initiative. And basically, they wanted us to work in the community to help reduce rates of obesity and type 2 diabetes in children and adults. So we worked with Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, as well as our hospital, to try to make a difference. But to try to make a difference, you have to understand the problem. So the first two years of funding, we just set about learning to understand the communities. And we were doing East LA, which is primarily Latino, and South LA, which is Black, but also Latino. And we hired small teams with members, again, from those communities to go into the communities and start to understand them. And we created community advisory boards, and we wanted the community advisory boards to tell us what they wanted, as opposed to me coming in and saying, we want to impose this research on you. And we also started convening focus groups that helped inform the development of whatever study protocols we were going to do. And we've continued using focus groups to this day because, it, again, it's not my world, it's their world. And understanding their world is the basis for everything I do. So as an example, both South and East LA wanted us to help their farmers markets initiatives. So they were ongoing initiatives, but they hadn't risen to the level of actually having farmers markets. So we were able to help both groups sort of get over the threshold and open farmers markets. And not only were we able to do that, we were able to give funding to a group called SELA, which is an organization that's expert in creating sustainable programs because we wanted to ensure sustainability. So it's been 20 years and we started the first ever farmer's market in Watts in South LA. And we helped start the first two farmer's markets in East LA. And although the farmer's markets have changed in where they meet and how they function, 20 years later, they're still ongoing. And one of the things we did to help with that was early on, we did surveys and polls, and we were able to show the benefits to the community, how many people went there. They took food stamps at the farmer's markets, and they wanted all sorts of other things. They wanted us to have chefs come and teach them how to cook. They went to grocery store tours. We were able to sort of riff off of this farmer's market um, initiative and do a lot for the community to help them have a healthier food environment. And again, 
it's never one size fits all, but this is what our communities wanted. And I think what a community, say, in New York would want may be different than ours. But it's all about listening to the community. And then once we did that, we continued to expand our research into all sorts of other things in terms of, again, helping patients have a healthier environment, a healthier health environment, so that they could do better in terms of long-term outcomes. Yeah, again, I think you really drive home the point that not only having a commitment to medicine, but also having a commitment to the community and truly understanding their specific needs and challenges is critical to gain that trust especially in those patients who may feel vulnerable or fear abandonment. And so kind of switching gears, another major challenge in performing any clinical trial is ensuring retention, especially in underrepresented populations. So in terms of recruitment of racially and ethnically diverse populations, what crucial tips can you share about facilitating patient follow-through from consent until the end of a trial? Well, which starts with truly informed consent and making sure that patients understand what they're getting into and that family members are involved. Then the next thing is working with the patients to give them the background knowledge they need to get them up to speed. If this is a multi-center trial, if it's a a trial that I'm just doing as an investigator-initiated trial, It's easier because I can design the trial to include the things these patients need to get them to the baseline level of what they need to understand to continue. But I think that the first steps are very helpful. And then I think that we need to have less rigid trials. And I know that we love to have trial designs that are very um, rigorous, where a patient comes in and then four weeks later they do this, and then two weeks later they do that, and that there's this cadence to it. But my patients have lives that are too complicated for that because if they miss a day at work, that means that they may not end up having enough money at the end of the week to buy food or to pay their rent. So we have clinic on the weekends. We do clinic in the evenings. We help with follow-up in terms of if patients need to have a taxi or Uber bring them in. And we have relationships both with taxi drivers and Uber drivers who help bring patients in. But we just try to make it work for the patient. And usually we have really good retention in our trials because we pay attention and we offer these services. And we're always working around what the patients need. If a patient's in a device trial, and you have to have a smartphone that sends data into whatever the cloud-based program is, and they don't have a smartphone that works. We have a locked smartphone that we give them so they can use it. And whatever the challenge is, we try to come up with a solution to allow participation. And I think that most people, if they know you're really trying to help them, want to do it. They want to be part of the trial they want to, you know, basically contribute. And then finally, we do home visits, more or less, depending on the trial, depending on what we actually need from the patients, but never send somebody out alone. We always send people out as teams because I want to make sure that they're safe and that they have backup. The last step is to transition patients back to their primary care doctors or wherever they're getting care. And 
make sure that they know what to do. The primary care doctors have been informed as to what's happened in the trial and that they're given a plan for going forward in terms of managing the patient. Sometimes we then will create another observational study, for instance, to keep following people so that they provide even more information and then we can continue to help them. So it sounds like it's kind of like a three-step process. And so I'm really interested in that last step where you talk about transitioning a patient from a clinical trial to primary care once the trial is over. So can you share a little bit what this transition looks like and what members of the team are really critical to the success of this transition? I always say the most important people in any of my clinical trials are my study coordinators because they're the ones the patients know the best. And they're the ones who do most of the hand-holding. So I never break off access. It's like, well, if you're still having an issue or you can't make an appointment with your primary care doctor, contact Martha or contact Sarah, whoever your person is, because I don't withdraw support. I continue it. And I reach out to the primary care providers and I give them a synopsis. And I actually offer, for instance, just say it's a clinical trial with devices that are on the market. Well, I'll do the prior authorizations for the primary care providers so that they get the devices for the patients that they need. So I'll often really be incredibly hands-on in terms of helping make sure that the patients get what they need in primary care. Or if I can't get the exact thing that I've been using, say I've been using one kind of insulin, but another kind of insulin will still work, I give the primary care doctor the options. You know, if we can't do X, we'll do Y, and this is how we help your patient. And it ends up being a nice relationship. So again, if the primary care doctor is on your side, they'll encourage patients to contribute, to participate, and then it's a a win-win kind of thing. And then we also use the social workers a lot because our system has social workers and caseworkers, and they're really helpful. So if somebody doesn't have a connection to a healthcare system, the social workers will help. The social workers are really used to this. I joke, not entirely joking, I say that the social workers are the best diabetes doctors I know because if a patient is facing all of these, you know, really overwhelming social determinants of health, a social worker can help them through that so that then they're able to be receptive to what I can give them. So I depend a lot on these referrals back out to the social workers who can help the patients. And to some degree, it's an interface between what my study coordinators have been doing and the actual social workers that work with the patients. Yeah, I definitely agree that a team-based approach is vital and, you know, it may take slightly more planning to initiate, but the outcomes ultimately are more robust and comprehensive. So Dr. Peters, today your insight has been really invaluable. And I just wanted to wrap up this episode and see what your top three things you would like our listeners to take away today. Overarchingly, I would say never give up on these populations because they need us more than any other. But When you drill down to working with these individuals, first of all, trust is critical, both of the patient and the primary care doctor and the community in which you're working. But the second is that sustainability is important, both in terms of sort of an immediate enrollment 
and recruitment, but then sustaining benefit because you want to help people over the long haul. And that will bleed out beyond the clinical trial. And I think it's important that we stay around. And then finally, I think just having a commitment to medicine and the communities and individualizing care and understanding what we don't know. I don't know these people's lives. And I think it takes a certain willingness to just listen. And I spend a lot of time listening. And I think that that really aids in terms of my effectiveness in these settings. Yeah, I think that those pearls are also very appropriate food for thought um, as we go into this holiday season. So Dr. Peters, thank you so much for speaking with us today about your passion for serving patients affected by diabetes, as well as those in underserved and minority communities. So I do have one final question to ask, um, and that is, do you have any passions outside of the professional or societal arena that you'd like to share with your listeners today? Well, there are many things that I love, but my favorite is that I love fly fishing on the Blackfoot River in Montana, which is near the cabin I have there. And I escape to the wilderness as often as I can. Oh, it definitely sounds like it's a good natural remedy to kind of de-stress from city life in Los Angeles and get out in the outdoors. That's my favorite thing too, is to get outside and just have the sun and, and nature around you. I just wanted to thank our listeners for joining us today on this episode of Keeping Insight, Bridging the Healthcare Community. We look forward for you to join us for our next episode. Please like our podcast and leave a review on Aqua Podcast if you enjoyed this episode or have comments you'd like to share.